Good morning again. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Please pray with me before we read God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we just sung about uh, the beauties and the glories that are found in your word, and we pray that as we turn to it now, that you would open it up to us, open our hearts up to it, uh, that you would work in us by your spirit, that we, would, that we would feast on your word, that we would feast on you in your word, that we would feast on our Savior Jesus, that you would be glorified as we as we come to know you more fully, come to enjoy you more fully in a way that brings you more glory in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 16. We'll begin reading in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. If I were to tell you that one of the main ways you can grow as a Christian is by learning to live a life of self-denial, you, you might roll your eyes at me. Uh, maybe you think, well, there he goes, those Christians, right, always looking to ruin a good time. Uh, we just want to enjoy ourselves, and you want us to deny ourselves. And if I were to tell you that the path to real joy in our relationship to God is found on the path to self-denial, then you'd know that I had gone completely insane. See, we're tempted to think that any talk of self-denial is, is, is distasteful at best and unhealthy, maybe, at worst. That people who make it a point to deny themselves things that they could have must be somehow mentally unstable. There's just got to be something wrong with them. Now, the truth is that uh, some of the most talented people, talented people in the world live lives of regular self-denial. Right? A musician spends hours practicing his instrument, but that, of course, means that he can't always go out with his friends. Uh, He must deny the desire to spend time hanging out or doing other things 
so he can develop the skills necessary to be a great musician. An athlete spends hours training her body, disciplining herself to be the best in her sport. But of course, that means denying herself certain things, maybe eating certain foods and and denying herself uh, the temptation to skip her morning exercises and sleep in. See, people who make it their habit to hone certain skills make it their habit to deny certain desires. The two necessarily go hand in hand. And yet, nevertheless, we live in a day that as a whole sees uh, little value to self-denial. There are times and places, of course, where people have taken self-denial to an excess, but our day is not one of those times and places. So when Jesus says in our passage this morning, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, he is confronting most of us head on. Self-denial is actually central to the Christian life. And I've got to be honest, it, it, it scares me a little bit that that's the case. We're going to look at our passage this morning and uh, self-denial under three headings. We're going to look, you can see it in your bulletin on the back there, the outline of our sermon. We're going to look at the pattern of the Christian life, the essence of the Christian life, and the motives of the Christian life. So we're going to jump right in with the pattern, the pattern of the Christian life. Why is self-denial so central to following Christ? Well, for one thing, to follow anybody is not to follow your own whim. I mean, on some level, uh, self-denial is necessary to following anyone. You know, people often put the needs of some cause in front of their own. Uh, There are people who sacrifice hours of time and money uh, for any number of worthy or less than worthy causes. And so self-denial, in one sense, is, is central to following anybody or anything. And so self-denial must be central to following Christ. And yet there's another more important answer to that question. And that is that self-denial is central to following Christ because Christ himself lived a life of self-denial. And we've been talking about Jesus' authority for a few weeks now. And we've been comparing his authority to Herod and to the religious leaders uh, last week, we even saw that how Jesus uh, deputized his 12 apostles with some of his authority to write down the message uh, of who he is as the Christ, the Son of God. And then in light of that, in light of this understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ, as the Son of God, we read verse 21. Verse 21 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. From that time, Jesus began. Uh, Every part of that's important, right? From that time means that it was only after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ that Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what he would do as the Christ, that he would suffer and die and rise again. From that time, Jesus began. Jesus doesn't just say this once. Uh, this begins a, a, a this becomes a dominant theme in Jesus' teaching from here on out. 
You know, when you tell someone about Jesus, about his dying for our sin, about his rising from the dead, it it normally takes more than once before it sinks in. And that was actually no different with Jesus and his disciples, which should be a great encouragement to us. Right? It took Jesus uh, saying the same things multiple times to his disciples again and again before they got it. Uh, how much more will that be true of us as well? Well, from that time, Jesus began. Right? Uh, Jesus is the one teaching his disciples about himself. Uh, the whole idea that Jesus had to suffer for sin and rise from the dead, uh, this wasn't something that was invented by Christians after his death, as is sometimes taught. But it was something that Jesus himself taught repeatedly again and again and again. It was central to Jesus' own self-understanding as the Messiah, as the Christ, that he would have to suffer and die and then rise again. Well, what does Jesus tell his disciples from that time again and again? Well, he he tells them that he came to suffer, uh, that he came to suffer in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. He says on the third day he's going to be raised from the dead, that the Father is not going to abandon Jesus to the grave, just as Psalm 16, which we read earlier, says, but that God is going to raise him up from the dead. And notice Jesus in this verse says that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer these things. The things that Jesus has, says here, they're, they're not just a good idea. It, it wasn't something that just popped into Jesus' head all of a sudden. Hey, let's go to Jerusalem, and maybe this is going to happen. No, Jesus says he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer. He must be killed. He must do it. He must do it because it's his Father's plan from the foundation of the world. He must do it in order to save us from condemnation and from hell. He must do it because that's what he came into the world to do. He came into the world to bear our sin in the cross, to die for us, and then to rise again, having conquered sin and death through the cross. Well, Peter listens to all of this and is, to put it lightly, taken aback. Peter's conception of the Messiah was of a conquering king, right? The Messiah was the long-promised Jewish king sent by God to conquer their enemies, to usher in a time of freedom and peace and joy. That the Christ or the Messiah would be rejected by his own people or would suffer and even be killed? This was preposterous. And so Peter takes a side and rebukes Jesus, Now, he just announced that Jesus was the Messiah, so the absurdity of the situation shouldn't be lost on us. But but Peter takes Jesus aside and says, you know, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen. And Jesus, of course, rebukes Peter for that rebuke in the harshest of terms. Look at verse 23. Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Just a few moments before, Peter was speaking truth revealed to him by God the Father. And now Peter is channeling Satan's lies. And yet Jesus' rebuke goes one step further. He says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter is is thinking in a way that's consistent with the way people of this world think, not consistent with the way that God thinks. Saying, Peter, you're, you're, you're thinking about it all wrong. 
Uh, Leon Morris, one commentator on Matthew, says it comes naturally to us to think of glory and honor, of comfort and security. That's what Peter's thinking about. Peter's thinking about the, the glory and honor of the Messiah. He's thinking about comfort and security, both for Jesus and probably also for himself, because if his teacher is going to go and suffer and die, what's going to happen to him? Peter's thinking of conquering and victory and the defeat of their enemies. Peter has his mind set on the things of man, Jesus says, not the things of God. Now, this harsh rebuke from Jesus to Peter, uh, Dr. Boyce says, shows two things. First, he says that uh, Christianity without the cross is worthless, right? I mean, the cross without, uh, the cross is central to Christianity, And so it's so central that Jesus says that the mere suggestion of a Christianity without a cross is from the devil himself. Jesus must suffer. Jesus must die for our sins. That is why he came. Peter himself eventually gets this right, of course. Uh, In in, uh, his first letter that he wrote, he says that Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And by his wounds... We are healed. See, the atoning death of Jesus, that is, that is the death of Jesus that brings reconciliation between us and God, is at the heart of the Christian message. Second, Dr. Boyce says that this rebuke shows that it's easy for us to be exactly right one minute and terribly wrong the next. And Peter's move from divine revelation to demonic inspiration should humble us and warn us. It should make us slow to speak and quick to listen. It should make us slow to teach and quick to learn. It should make you diligent to search the scriptures for yourselves to see if what I'm saying every Sunday is true. I mean, if Peter could get it this wrong at this moment with the Messiah standing in front of him, I certainly can and will at times. See, we need to be on guard. Because just because we're right in one place, just because we know something, doesn't mean we know everything, right? Just because we're right in one place doesn't mean we're not terribly wrong in another. The cross is at the heart of Christianity. Jesus' self-denial is the foundation for everything else. And it's that self-denial which brings us life, forgiveness, and fellowship with our Father. But it's also this self-denial that is the pattern for how we are to live. And that's what Jesus turns to next. Jesus sets the pattern for the Christian life, and now let's look then at the essence of the Christian life. Verse 24, uh, again, is is radical and a little bit scary. Uh, Like I said before, if I'm honest, I think I'm genuinely afraid of thinking through all the implications of this verse. Jesus says, if anyone is to come after him, there are three things that he must do. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. Jesus is defining discipleship. He's defining what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not simply believing certain doctrines about Jesus. I mean, there, there are plenty of things to believe, of course. Uh, we need to believe in Jesus. We need to put our trust in Jesus' death and resurrection as our Messiah, as our Savior. But being a Christian according to Christ means denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. 
These three things uh, are maybe just different shades of the same reality, of getting at the same thing. To deny oneself is to look at your desires, your dreams, your plans for life, and on some level to say no. To say no to everything that is you, everything that would serve your interests, everything that would promote your own ends. To deny oneself is to recognize that life is not about you. You are not the one in charge. You are not the ruler. To recognize that there is a standard higher than your desires, that sometimes you must say no to yourself. One commentator said, the natural tendency of the race is to affirm oneself, to concentrate on what serves one's own interests, to make oneself as prosperous as one can, and Jesus calls on all his true followers to renounce such self-interest. But Jesus says we're not only to deny ourselves negatively, but positively we are to take up our cross. Now the cross is an instrument of execution. We can't get around that. As, as beautiful as many crosses are today, uh, it was not beautiful in Jesus' day. To take up your cross is to head to death. Jesus is saying that in order to follow him, we must put self to death. And the reasoning is simple, right? There is not room for two people on the throne of your heart, Jesus and self. One of the two must go. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must put self to death. Now, again, as Dr. Boyce says about this passage, he says, Jesus never suggested that his followers could die for sin. But Jesus does say that his followers are to die to self as they follow him. See, Jesus is not talking about having self-esteem issues. He's not talking about a poor self-image or some kind of weird schizophrenia. He's not necessarily saying, he's not necessarily saying we need to change our careers or sell our houses or move across the world to be missionaries. But he's talking about rejecting ourselves as rulers of our hearts and subjecting ourselves to the only one who is worthy of our allegiance. He's talking about a commitment to something and someone higher and greater than our own whims. This is really the battle in the Christian life, isn't it? I mean, this is the battle we must fight daily. This is the battle behind all other battles. Will I serve myself and my own fickle desires, or will I serve King Jesus? I mean, think about it. Every virtue comes down to this battle. Love, right? Love comes down to this battle. Uh, Love comes down to the question, will I deny my desires to serve myself, so that I can sacrificially serve another person. Patience with my children comes down to this. Will I deny my desires to have what I want now? Am I willing to deny my desire for control and comfort and pleasure? Am I willing to accept inconvenience and difficulty for the moment? Right? Will I deny my plans for this moment and submit those plans to God's good plan for my life? If I want to be patient, that's what I need to do. Kindness comes down to this question. Will I deny my desire for revenge or my supposed right to be bitter and angry at another person because I've been hurt? And will I instead speak in tenderness and with respect? 
Self-control comes down to this question. Will I deny my desire to indulge in the world? Will I submit that desire to God's priorities for me? Will I focus my desire on what is truly satisfying? See, every battle, every battle is fought at the level of desires. Every battle is fought at the level of self-denial. Now, human beings need some guiding impulse. Uh, For many, it it is our individual desire, our whim, our our fancy, right? We do what we like. In in other cultures, it it might be honor or, or family or country or religion that guides those things. But we need something to guide us. Or else we would just sit motionless, right? Desireless, motiveless. We would do nothing. We would say nothing. We would want nothing. You see, we can't simply deny ourselves and take up our cross. We can't simply do that. Because if we just denied ourselves and and put self to death, we would be at a standstill. And so Jesus says more. You see, denying yourself and taking up your cross, those are not ends in themselves. But they are unto the end of following Jesus. So Jesus says in verse 23... Sorry, in verse 24, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If we want to come after Jesus, we must follow Jesus. And this means in the context, of course, first, uh, following him and denying self and putting self to death. Analogously to the way that Jesus denied himself and went to the cross, we must die to ourselves and take up our crosses. Again, we don't die for sin like Jesus did, but we must die to ourselves. But following Jesus also means following him, doing things like pursuing obedience to the Father the way Jesus did, loving others sacrificially the way Jesus did, remembering the bigger picture the way Jesus did. You know, concretely, cross-bearing self-denial for Jesus means that I submit every desire to him. In everything I do, what Jesus desires, thinks, wants, matters more to me than what I desire, think, and want. And so I deny myself. I deny that I am in control for the sake of pursuing Jesus' agenda for my life. It means that my time and my money and my talents, my opportunities, are not used simply for myself and my own self-promotion. But they're used for Christ. And for the promotion of his name and his glory. Again, one commentator put it like this. He said, Jesus is not talking about some masochistic activity. He's not referring to someone who has such a poor self-esteem that his life crumbles. He's referring to the person who loses his life for my sake. The one who puts the service of God's Messiah before all else who counts all well lost for Christ's sake, and who consequently devotes all his time to serving Christ and other people for Christ's sake. To deny what serves my interests, to deny what promotes my reputation, to deny what furthers my agenda and what brings me happiness, to submit myself to the rule of another, this is not natural for us. Why? Why would I do that? Jesus says we deny ourselves because we're following him. That's a pretty bold ask for Jesus. I mean, if Jesus is not who he says he is, 
to put it mildly, he's asking too much. For anyone to ask you to give up your life to follow him is asking too much, unless Jesus really is who he says he is. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he has a right not just to ask, but really to demand that we take up our cross and follow him. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He has come to renew the world. He's the one who first died for us so that we might follow him. And this brings us to then our third point about the motives of the Christian life. Now, the motives Jesus mentioned here are not what I would expect. I mean, if I were Jesus, which clearly I'm not, I would have mentioned that the glories of God or the worth of King Jesus or the love of the Father and the Son displayed in the cross. I mean, these are, are worthy motives that Scripture elsewhere, of course, puts before us. But what Jesus appeals to here is interesting. Jesus appeals to sanctified self-interest. Now, if you've been paying attention and listening closely, you realize that what I just said was that Jesus encourages self-denial on the basis of self-interest, which actually I think is true. Um, Jesus here says that you should deny yourself because it is in your best interest to deny yourself. And if cross-bearing is to be in imitation of Jesus, this really must be the case. Uh, The book of Hebrews says this about Jesus. It says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. Now, Jesus isn't saying that, that Christians should be people who deny themselves and so walk around moping and unsatisfied all the time. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying that Christians should be people who deny themselves because that is to their greater joy. To put it differently, our our greatest joy is not to be found in pursuing our own individual kingdoms, right? Creating a world where satisfying my needs is, is, is what everything around me does. But our greatest joy is found in pursuing Jesus. Now, I want to summarize what Jesus says in verses 25 through 28 about this under, under two motives, two motives that Jesus gives. The first is, is that if you deny yourself for Jesus, you will save your life. And the second is if you deny yourself for Jesus, you will be repaid by Jesus. So first, if you deny yourself for Jesus, you will save your life. And I can put this even more starkly, provocatively even, uh, Self-denial is unto self-realization. Self-denial for Jesus is unto self-realization. The language, okay, maybe it's a little off-putting to say it that way, but it would be difficult to deny this in light of what Jesus says in verse 25. Here's what he says in verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus uses really simple math here, doesn't he? He says, if you seek to save your life, the end result will be that you lose your life. But if you're willing to give up your life for Jesus, to lose your life for his sake, then you will find it. You cannot find your true self, Jesus is saying. You cannot realize your true self unless and until you deny yourself, lose yourself for Jesus. 
Now, in order to understand this odd saying, we have to look at the next verse, right? Verse 26. Verse 26 says, For what will will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, here Jesus is talking about the relative value of your life compared to the world. And he's saying your life is more valuable than the whole world. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It profits nothing because his life, his soul is more valuable. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? Nothing because nothing is that valuable. Nothing in this life is that valuable. Once you've lost it, you cannot buy it back. Jesus is saying. Now, this math uh, doesn't really work according to our reckoning because we want the world. We want everything that the world has to offer. We value money and sex and possessions and reputation and power. They're good things made by God. We value the comfort of a stable home, the order of a clean home, the company of a loving home. We value what this world has to offer. But Jesus says there is something more valuable still. See, we think that life is having these things. Jesus says you can have all these things and lose your life. And what that means is, what Jesus is getting at is that real life is something more than what this world has to offer. Real life is... Must be, if if your life is more valuable than everything in the world put together, then real life must be something more than this world has to offer. This is why, if you try to save your life, you will lose it. Right? I mean, what you think is life isn't. If you try to grasp those things that you think are life, you will lose that which is truly life. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will find it. Okay, what is it then? What is this life that Jesus is talking about? What is, it this, what is this life that he's holding out that is worth more than everything in the world put together? Well, life is ultimately found in communion with God. Life is a relationship to the one who made us. Fellowship with God, walking with God, obedience to God, enjoying the glory of God, resting in the love of God. If we spend our lives pursuing the world that God made rather than the God who made the world, we will miss out on what life is really about. But if we give up our lives for Jesus, if we decide we're going to spend our lives pursuing him and the things that he wants us to pursue, we will enjoy life to its fullest. Jesus said he came that we may have life and have it to its fullest And he says here that we experience that life as we deny ourselves and follow him. Now, let me emphasize that last statement and explain what it doesn't mean. We experience life as we deny ourselves and follow Jesus. And what that doesn't mean is that we earn life as we deny ourselves and follow him. It's not like, you know, every time I deny myself something, I get brownie points with God and he's going to reward me. It doesn't mean... Right? That we earn life as we deny ourselves and follow him. Eternal life, the Bible says, is the gift of God in Jesus. The free gift. But if this life is living in fellowship with God, and as a Christian I spend my days pursuing the world, 
I will not enjoy my inheritance. I will not enjoy that gift. The path of life, as Psalm 16 puts it, is through the cross. First, Jesus' cross, which purchases life for us, and then our own as we take up our cross and follow him and learn to experience and enjoy this freely gifted life. Now, I said Jesus gives two motives for denying yourself to follow him. The the first is if you deny yourself for Jesus, you will save your life. Self-denial for Jesus is unto self-realization. Our greatest joy will be denying ourselves and pursuing Jesus. But the second motive is this. If you deny yourself for Jesus, you will be repaid by Jesus. Now, I would, I would never use the word repaid if Jesus hadn't used it first. But he does in verse 27. Verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Now, while the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus, right? That's the gift. Salvation is unearned. It's undeserved. Uh, By grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, right? Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Nevertheless, Jesus promises to reward his people for their service. Properly speaking, of course, we can earn, earn nothing. I mean, everything we do, even as Christians, everything we do is tainted with sin, If God were to view us and our works in our sin, they would deserve only his damnation. But see how gracious our Father is, that he is willing to reward us, to repay us for our service to him. That that is, whatever you give up in this life, whatever sacrifices you make to follow Jesus, whatever desires go unmet, whatever aspect of self must be denied, Jesus promises that that will not go unnoticed by him. Now, if we try to get people to to notice us in the here and now, Jesus says back in Matthew 6, you have your reward. But if you do what you do to be seen by your Father in heaven, your Father will see and will reward you. What's the reward? Well, if if true life itself is, is simply a gift to be given... And everything in the world, even the world as a whole, is nothing compared to that life, which is a gift. Then how could Jesus possibly give us anything more? I mean, how could he repay us? What more could Jesus possibly give? He's given us something worth more than everything else in the world put together. Well, if life is communion with our God, as we said, then then the only thing left to give is a greater communion and a deeper enjoyment of our God. And that's our hope. Going ever deeper, drawing ever closer, knowing more fully, enjoying more fully. Communion with our Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. That's that's the reward that he gives. That's how Jesus will repay us, with a deeper enjoyment of him. This is why I think uh, the last verse there, verse 28, is, is talking primarily about Pentecost. 
Verse 28, there are lots of speculations about what is Jesus talking about when he talks about the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And it could mean his resurrection, it could mean his ascension, it could mean Pentecost, and there are half a dozen other options that people give. But I think primarily is talking about Pentecost, or at least everything as it leads up to Pentecost. Pentecost, you may remember, is, is the day on which Jesus pours out his spirit on the church in a new way. And with the exception of Judas, those who were there did not taste death, death until they saw the spirit descend on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit descends as a visible manifestation of Jesus reigning in heaven. And Jesus sends his Spirit as a foretaste, as a foretaste of eternal communion, the eternal communion that we will enjoy with him in the new creation. So our our communion uh, with God uh, through the Spirit, whom Jesus pours out, is a foretaste of the day when we will see him face to face, when we will dwell in his presence, when we will know the joy of dwelling with our God, of being with him, of seeing him. We deny ourselves now because we want uh, want to taste fellowship with the Father now in the hope of feasting on it in eternity. Well, how do we start? Where do we begin? What does it look like to deny ourselves and follow Jesus? Well, sometimes there are larger things, larger addictions, right, that need to be broken because our bodies, our souls, our minds, our hearts are consumed with something. And talking about that would be a sermon all in itself. But of course, everything I'm going to say applies to that as well. But for all of us, it means setting our minds on the things of God and not the things of man. It's it's Romans 12, verse 2 stuff, right, where we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. See, it's only when we realize the relative value of the world compared to our relationship to our Father will the one be worth giving up for the other. And so we need to conform our thoughts, our imagination to Scripture, Psalm 119, 9 and 11 says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, we need, to, to, we need God's word, his thoughts, to constrain our hearts. We need to meditate on Christ. Colossians tells us to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. We need to set our minds on Jesus so that what Philippians 2 says would be true of us, that we would have this mind in us, which was first in Christ Jesus. So we need to set our mind on the things of God. We need to set our mind there so that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus. But also we need to begin, we need to begin by self-denial in the little things. Um, Self-denial in smaller things grows us in our ability to say no. There are little things where I am controlled rather than self-controlled. I need to begin to say no in those areas. For me, that may mean going to Starbucks less, right? Or eating one less piece of chocolate or having a smaller bowl of ice cream. And, And I know there are more profound things than that and those things seem really trivial, But it's not trivial, and it's not trivial for for this reason, because saying no to small things when we know that we should, 
begins to set a pattern of self-control. It begins to set a pattern of self-denial in our lives for the sake of something bigger. Now, of course, whatever self-denial that we, however we live that out, we can't do that in our own strength. And so we begin where we always need to begin. We need to begin asking for the Spirit to work that in us. Asking for the Spirit to subdue our hearts to the kingship of Jesus. Asking for the Spirit to wage war against the desires of the flesh that are in us so that we would follow Him and not our own whims. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And then you will know life to its fullest. Then you will know joy in fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we, want, we want life. We want life to its fullest. Jesus said this is eternal life, that they might know, that we might know you, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life. The psalmist says that there are pleasures at your right hand. Father, we long for that pleasure. We long for that life. We long for that joy. And we pray that you would enable us to pursue it with our whole hearts, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to put self to death, that we would be able to follow Jesus, that we would know real joy in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.